Hey, murder lovers. My name is Mackenzie. And this is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. So, I'm back. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all for letting me take more time off than I intended. You guys have heard me refer to Mike on the podcast and... Mike is my boyfriend of the last year, Um, but we have known each other since we were 14 years old. We had gone to high school together and we met when we were kids. And on September 23rd, he was killed in a car accident leaving our house. So I've taken a little time off to try and get my bearings underneath me and I wanted to Say thank you to those who have let me take some time away and to Fatina and Kara, obviously, for holding down the fort while I was gone um, and making sure that we still got content out for you guys. Several of you guys sent really nice messages. Somebody reached out and said that she sensed a change was coming and nothing's changing. Um, (laughs) I will still be here. I want to this to continue to be what it's always been for us and that's an escape from reality and especially right now for me I need an escape from my reality so um my plan is to keep doing this I'd gone back and forth about having this conversation or telling you guys what's going on but Mikey was and Mikey loved that I did this podcast that we just launched it when him and I had started dating um and he sat in the room with us before when we've recorded This was something that the episode that I'm going to be covering today was the last episode that I was researching when we were together, and this was something that we talked about in a car ride that we had one day up to Washington. We had several hours to kill, so we (laughs) talked about this in depth, Um, but he always supported the podcast, loved the podcast, loved that I loved the podcast, and um, to not share with you guys what had happened would be like pretending like the last year of our life together had not happened. So so today's episode, I am making good on my promise to you guys all from September that we would be covering Richard Speck from the Mindhunter series. Um, and today I'm going to be doing this one in honor of Mikey. We're taking a little break. We'll be right back. Um, So Richard Speck, if you guys watch the Mindhunter series, you guys will remember that he is the one who had the southern accent when he was talking to Holden, who is the main character. And that was a feature of his. He had kind of a southern drawl, so that um, made him identifiable down the road. But 1966 became known as the year the world went mad. And this was in large part to do with the serial killers and mass murderers of that year. So that included Richard Speck, who that year had broke into a dormitory in Chicago and killed eight nursing students in a single night. Jesus Christ. Yeah. We're just getting back on the horse. Yeah. We're diving right in. So Robert Ressler, who wrote Those Who Hunt Monsters, um, who also worked for the FBI, and I think he's the... um, character inspiration behind Holden's partner in the Mindhunter series. Oh, okay. He's the the big older guy. Yeah. Big burly older guy. Yeah, okay. Um 
So Robert Ressler had described him as not a serial killer, but a mass murderer. So they were differentiated very specifically in their categories. But Richard Speck, to give you a background, was born on December 6th of 1941. He was the seventh of eight kids to Damn. Benjamin Franklin Speck. Oh. Not the president. Got it. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin was the president, right? That's, yeah. Okay. Right? Uh, wait. Was he? Actually, he was not. He's he was just an inventor, right? Bill. Yeah. Oh, God. I'm not that he's, stupid, I promise. He's key on the kite. Benjamin Franklin. Shit. Oh, God. <laughs> We're going to delete our idiots. Yeah. <laughs> he was definitely not a president. He was one of the founding fathers. Right. He's on a $100 bill. Mm. We know that. Yeah, we do know that. The Benz. Um, Jimins. God, you're just going to have to, like, <laughs> completely. I'm so sorry. It's uh, not COVID, so we're it's good. It's not COVID. <laughs> it's emotions. Okay, so Speck, like I said, was born to <laughs> Benjamin Franklin Speck, who we now know as a founding father and not a president, and Mary Margaret Carbo. Those are some names. Those are some powerful names. Yeah, I know. They sound real official. Um, they lived in Kirkwood, Il- Kirkwood. Kirkwood. 25th. <laughs> he was the 25th president. <laughs> they lived in Kirkwood, Illinois, before moving to Monmouth, Illinois. And his dad worked as a packer, a logger, and a farmer. Um, Speck was very close to his dad as much as a child could be until his dad died suddenly of a heart attack in 1947. Oh my gosh, I just put something together. What? Oh, I'm going to circle back around to that to the very end. Damn. Okay. I think heart problems run in the family. Oh. More to come. Got it. Um, but Speck at the time was six years old. His mom was very- that's young to lose a parent. Mm Mm-hmm. Jesus. And so his mom was very religious and was adamantly against drinking alcohol of any kind or amount. There's a word for it. It's called teetotalism or something. Um, This was one of the things Mikey and I talked about in the car is how to pronounce that word. And I still am not 100% sure on it. (laughs) Um, But basically, it's the complete abstinence of alcohol. Okay. So it was obviously a big surprise when she fell in love with a hard-drinking traveling insurance salesman a few years later. So Carl Lindbergh had a 25-year criminal record. He was basically the polar opposite of Speck's dad. The couple married in 1950 in Texas, and the family eventually relocated there. And then they moved about 10 times in 12 years, and they kind of bounced between poor neighborhoods. So kind of the underlying theme there is that there was very little stability. They were constantly bouncing around. Especially with that many kids. Right. And because... This man was so different from Speck's dad, who he obviously loved and admired very much. He kind of grew to hate his stepdad, who, on top of being a hard drinker, when he got drunk, was often, like, very threatening and insulting mm. and took it out on Richard. Got who was it. the little baby of the family. He was, yeah. of the eight, eight kids, he was obviously the youngest one of, of the, the youngest. Yeah. yeah. Speck struggled through school, um, not necessarily because of high IQ or, I'm sorry, Obviously, that's not why he struggled through school. (laughs) Speck struggled through school, but it wasn't because of any IQ issues, but because he needed glasses and he wouldn't wear them. Oh. So he Hmm. couldn't very often, like, read anything that was going on, and he was embarrassed by them. Oh. I mean, what kid is in that first? I was. I always wanted glasses. Yeah. At some point. I have blue light glasses now, so I can fit in. Do you? But... (laughs) 
So because of this, he was actually held back in eighth grade, and then he failed every class in ninth grade before dropping out mid-year, right before he turned 16. Jesus. So unlike some of the other people that we've covered in Mindhunter now, Speck was on, not necessarily the lower end of the IQ scale, but he wasn't really an overly intelligent person and not very well educated, obviously. So that was not one of the things that he was really known for. Unlike Ed Kemper, who was just like... Off the charts. Off the charts and knew what he's doing and why he was doing it. And he could really psychoanalyze himself. Richard Speck is not one of these people. Okay. Kind of your average Joe type of thing. Yeah. And everything he does is very just kind of like instinctual and without much rhyme or reason. Struggles to like really self-reflect, honestly. So a lot of emotional... Yeah, he's kind of, um, yeah, yeah, one of the things that they talk about with him in prison later on, spoiler, obviously, he gets caught and goes to prison, um, is that he (laughs) kind of is, like, emotionally stunted. Weird. And kind of um, lacks, like, emotional maturity. Sure. So, he, um, before obviously dropping out of school, he'd picked up alcohol around the age of, like, 12, and by the time he was 15, he was drunk on a daily basis. He was first arrested at 13 for trespassing. And would be arrested countless more times for, like, misdemeanor offenses and stuff over, like, the next eight years or so. And in October of 1961, Speck met 15-year-old Shirley Malone at the Texas State Fair. Now, at this time, he was about two months away from turning 20 years old. So, hashtag illegal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Three weeks later, she was pregnant. Holy shit. Yeah, they moved very quickly. Yeah, they did. Especially for that time period, I feel like, you know? Is that just me? No. Okay. Really any time period, but really fast. I mean, maybe she's out there thotting and bopping, living her best life. She's at the country fair. (laughs) The Texas fair. (laughs) So, like I said, she became pregnant. So, they got married on January 19th of 1962, which I'm kind of like, where were your parents? But (laughs) never mind. (laughs) She... Got pregnant three weeks later because she yeah. was unsupervised at the fair. So what can yep. you do? Um, his, she moved in with him, his mom, his sister, and his sister's husband. Okay. And his mom and stepdad at this point had separated and his stepdad was living in California. So there was like a little bit more space. So it was him and the younger sister. Right. Because they were the last two or whatever. Mm. And then Richard Speck's daughter was born on July 5th of 1962. What his young young bride did not know is that he missed the birth of their daughter because he was actually in jail for a 22-day sentence for disturbing the peace because he oh. got drunk. I think he told her that he was, like, out of town or something like that working How or something to that extent. Know? Well, there's no cell phones back then and no yeah, public but, records. And oof. He was like, okay, I got a job. I got to go. And he was, like, sitting in jail for 22 days. Wow. Yeah. Okay. She's like, all right, I'll give birth to this baby all on my own. Thanks a lot, buddy. Bye. And so that was kind of like, um, kind of graduating at that point to less like misdemeanor offenses. And we're bordering on felonies now because in July of 1963, he was arrested for forging and cashing his coworkers paycheck of $44. Really? Money, honey. $44. I mean, it's the 60s, so... Let's find out in today's money what that is. Uh, I want to say like 120 bucks. I'm going to say 210. Nice. Um, it is equivalent to $371.94 today. Still. 
I mean, that does make it a little bit more like... I mean, yeah, that's like half a rent payment maybe or something. Listen, he does a lot worse for a lot less down the road, so stand by. Okay. Put a pin in that, if you will. (laughs) He also then robbed a grocery store of cigarettes, beer, and $3 in cash. And he went to prison for three years for that, but was paroled after 16 months. Three years for that? Yeah. That's that's significant. Well, and that's interesting that you say that because, I mean, I'll get there. I'll okay. get there because cool, cool, cool. the crimes don't necessarily fit the time right. as we go along. Okay. Okay. So he was paroled after 16 months and a week after he was paroled, he attacked a woman with a 17-inch carving knife. He fled the scene when she screamed. The police found him a few blocks away. And at that time, he was convicted of aggravated assault. And in comparison to the three years that he served for robbing a store of cigarettes, he was sentenced to 16 months. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I was like, Texas. aggravated assault, <laughs> yeah. cigarette theft. Mm-hmm. Those are two different things. $3 in cash apparently matters a lot more than... Eel. That's probably like $60 in today's money. <laughs> now, due to an error, because he was charged for both the aggravated assault and the parole violation, mm. there was an error in the system. So he was released after serving six months, which was just the time for the parole violation. So oh he never actually served any time God. for the aggravated assault. Wow. Mm-hmm. And at that point, he went to work as a driver for a meat company. And all was well in the world. Okay. (laughs) The end. (laughs) Okay, bye. See you next week. (laughs) But as the person he was, he had six car accidents and he was fired. Six car accidents in the car that he drove. For his work. For his work. Yes. Okay. And then eventually he was fired for failing to show up to work. And then in December of 1965, his mom came up with this really bright idea that he should go live with this 29-year-old divorced woman. That he should? Yeah. Because she was a single mom. She had three kids, and she needed a babysitter for those kids. She worked at the bar that Richard often went to, and so oh. Richard's mom was like, I know what's a really good idea. You should go babysit for her. <laughs> and okay. At the time, Richard was separated from his wife, and so he was like, that sounds like a really good idea. So I'll go live with this woman and babysit her kids, which I'm like, how much babysitting did he really actually do? Can you do? Right. And how much did he get paid? Mm. Not much, guaranteed. Probably not. In today's money. (laughs) Not 10 bucks a kid, I guarantee you that. (laughs) So... His wife at that point was like, enough is enough. And that's when she actually filed for divorce. Oh, okay. And so around the same time of her filing divorce, Speck stabbed a man in a ni- with a knife in a bar fight. Which is interesting. His escalations happen usually around the time his wife does something that Something's really pisses happened. him off. Right. So his wife files for divorce. He stabs a guy with a knife in a bar fight. And so he's charged again with aggravated assault. But his mom hires some top-notch attorney, which I'm like, come on, mom. Like, you're just not not hitting the mark here. And he was convicted only of disturbing the peace. Wow. So he was charged. That's a good lawyer. Well, yeah. And so he was charged a $10 fine, (laughs) but he didn't pay it. So he spent three days in jail after he failed to pay the fine. So 
Once he gets out of jail on March 5th of 1966, Speck goes out and buys a 12-year-old car. He then robs a grocery store and steals 70 cartons of cigarettes. And then the genius that he is, he turns around and sells those cigarettes out of the trunk of his car in the same grocery store parking lot. Yeah, sounds really smart. Yeah. He's really firing on all cylinders there. I mean, when you're an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur. There's not... <laughs> He's on that work-from-home basis where he <laughs> he works out of his car. Do I have an opportunity for you? <laughs> so he ditched the car after he sold all of his products. <laughs> but he was arrested only three days later um, for that same crime. Hmm. Before the actual trial and everything like that, though, his sister was like, you got to get out of here because you're going to go back to prison. Yeah. So his sister drives him to a bus station and puts him on a bus and he lands in Chicago. So he stayed with another sister there and begins working as a carpenter in his hometown of Monmouth. Again, things escalate because he finds out that his ex-wife, after being granted their divorce, gets remarried only two days later oh, after shit. the divorce is, is finalized. I mean, some things are happening he already. Was like, oh, hell no. But, but, but he knows was, she's fast. <laughs> I mean, but so was he. He was the one that yeah, moved in with somebody. So he moved into a hotel in downtown Monmouth and began drinking the nights away at taverns because he was pissed off that his wife was remarried and she had seemingly moved on. And then he got into a fight with somebody in a bar bathroom and held them up at knife point. So he was arrested by police and held overnight. And then on April 3rd, again, this is very shortly after the whole divorce thing. Oh, I shouldn't say he, cause I don't know if it's him. Allegedly. This is not one of the things he was convicted of. Oh, okay. So at that time on April 3rd, 65 year old Virgil Harris came home at 1am to a man with a knife in her house. She said that he was very polite, that he had a southern drawl, hmm. like we know our buddy has. You don't have you don't have many people not with in that Illinois. accent in Chicago, right? Yeah. And he blindfolded her, tied her up, raped her, and stole the two dollars and fifty cents she'd earned babysitting that night. So now we know what you make babysitting in an entire evening. Two dollars and fifty cents is all. <laughs> Which I'm like, come on, yeah, two bucks, like. And then the next week, 32-year-old Mary Pierce was last seen leaving work at a tavern around 12.20 a.m. She was reported missing on April 13th, and her body was found that day in an empty hog house behind the tavern. And she had died from blunt force trauma to the stomach, which ruptured Ooh. her liver. And so Speck was actually questioned because he was a frequent flyer of the bar, but also because he'd helped to build that hog house the previous month oh. as a carpenter job. Got it. And so police questioned him and then said, you know, like, hang around, stay in town. We may have more questions for you. And when they went back to the hotel to actually ask him said questions, he had actually checked out of the hotel. And in his hotel room, they'd found a radio and jewelry belonging to that first victim, Virgil Harris. Oh. So while we're on allegedly, I mean, mm -hmm. come on. Yeah. And then they'd also found items from two other burglaries reported in the past month, but nothing that necessarily him, linked him directly to Mary Pierce. Mm. But all signs are going. Mm. They found this little trophy case, though. Yeah. And I'm kind of surprised that he left all that stuff behind, but 
as we know, he's not very smart. Right. He's working on just instinct, just yeah. get up and go. That's, that's what I mean. It's like he he escalates with, you know. he does things, right. Yeah. Like something happens that really pisses him off and he escalates very dramatically at that right. moment. And he's not thinking long-term like self-preservation type thing. Right. And no, it's very instinctual. And so... In, on April 19th of 1966, Speck moved back in with his sister in Chicago. So he takes off out of Monmouth, goes back to Chicago, just hide out there. And when he gets there, he tells them this whole story about how he's on the run from a crime organization after refusing to sell drugs to them. And they're like, okay, likely story. Yeah. Sure. But you can stay. So his brother-in-law, who worked for the Navy at the time, thought that he could get Speck a job working for the U.S. Merchant Marine. And so he took him to apply for the Coast Guard. And at that time, he had to be fingerprinted, photographed, and had a physical done. Sure. Speck was hired, but then he had to leave his first assignment after developing appendicitis on the ship. Oh. And he had to have an emergency appendectomy. Okay. So he went back to his sister's house in Chicago to recover. And then he rejoined the merchant about a... I don't know how long... And then he rejoined the merchant, but then was kicked off less than a month later for fighting with a boat officer after he got really drunk on really? one of the assignments. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So the boat life wasn't for him. Um, he went back to stay with his sister. His brother-in-law was like, all right, we got to figure out something else because it's not really working out with like this whole U.S. thing. But right. he has ship experience, so he, like, he thought that he could take him to get his Siemens card. <laughs> Thank you for pausing because you knew I was going to laugh. Yep. <laughs> I am a child sometimes. <laughs> Duty. <laughs> That's a friend's reference if you didn't get it. <laughs> so he goes to the hiring hall, um, which is kind of like, it sounds like kind of like the unemployment office, okay. if you will. And the hiring hall where he went to get this card to be a seaman. Mm-hmm. Yep. Certified semen. Certified. Was right adjacent to a series of townhouses that house nursing students. Oh. So on July 8th, Speck went to the hiring hall to get work on a ship because he'd gotten his card, but he was beat out with some by somebody that had more seniority than him. Mm. So a couple days later, he goes back because his sister is like, all right, you've overstayed your welcome. It's time for you to go, sir. Yeah. So he goes back to the hiring hall and waits for a spot on a ship, and he's staying at a boarding house. And the next day he receives a spot, and he drives 30 minutes to the dock and finds out that his spot's been taken. No. So then he gets pissed. Of course. And he drives back to the hiring hall, which is now closed. Oh, my God. So he sleeps in an unfinished house that night because he's out of money and doesn't have anything to actually be able to get a room or anything like that. Wow. And then the next day, he's still not able to find work. So his sister drives down to meet him. She gives him $25 to stay in a room. And that day, he spends the entire day drinking hmm. and holds up a 53-year-old woman at knife point at one of the taverns where he's been drinking. Oh, wow. He takes her to his room, rapes her, and then steals her twenty-two caliber pistol. Ooh. And then on July 13th, he has dinner, he's continued his drinking binge, and leaves his room dressed in all black with his knife that he's been committing all of his crimes right, with right. and the stolen pistol. 
and goes to the nurse's townhouse at around 10.20 p.m. So he breaks into the house at approximately 11 p.m. And then using his knife, he attacks and kills Gloria Davy, Patricia Matisic, oh gosh, I'm going to butcher these names, I'm sorry in advance, Nina Joe Shamal, Pamela Wilkening, Suzanne Ferris, Marianne Jordan, Merlita Gargulo, and Valentina Passione. He had held them all in the room for several hours altogether. So basically there had been like five or six of them at home. And then as he was like holding them and he said he was just going to rob them, three more had come home from work. And so he puts them all in this room and one by one leads them out and either stabs them or strangles them to death. No. And each one of them continues to comply because they think that if they comply with him, oh my God. that they that we'll they'll be, like, be fine. And they're not realizing what's happening to these girls as they're being taken out of the room. And one, oh God. one manages to hide under the bed. And the theory is, is that he loses count of all the girls that are in the room by the mm. time he's got through eight of them. Yeah. Because one of them hides out of the bed and she survives. Wow. He raped and strangled his last victim, which is Gloria Davy, and Corazon Amora is the one who survived by hiding under the bed. So she calls for help when he leaves. She stays under the bed, I think, until they said 6 a.m. the next day. Wow. Just in case he's still in the house. That's incredible. She calls for help, gives a full description of him, you know, what he sounds like. He yeah. has an identifying tattoo that she provides to the police oh, okay. and gives a full description of him. She's seen him, knows exactly what he looks like. Because he put her in the room and then she hides under the bed. So right. she knows. In fact, she was the one that opened the door when he broke in and he held her oh, at knife first point. One. Mm-hmm. So they obviously come in and do a whole crime scene analysis or whatever and take fingerprints which they later are able to match to spec because he has fingerprints on file with the U.S. merchant right. for, yeah. For the job, yeah. Yep. And so he hasn't been identified just yet, but two days later after the murder, Speck is drinking on a fire escape with some drifters. And the next day, one of the men recognizes a, I know. Right? Some drifters. Drifters. That's what they call them. <laughs> you know, they're just kind of breezing they just out don't of have town. a place. Yeah. yeah. So the next day, one of the men that had sat on the fire escape with him recognized a sketch in the newspaper of the murderer. And he was like, that's the boy that I was drinking on the fire escape with. So he calls the police and he's like, I got your guy. This is him. And this is where he's staying. And you can find him here. And the police are like, okay. And then they don't respond to the call. What? Yeah. I mean, you would think they're probably getting a million and a half tips. And so they're, like, sorting through them. This is kind of like when they called in, Ted Bundy's girlfriend calls in. Yeah. She's like, hey, so I'm dating this guy, and he matches the description, and he has this the, car, and his yep. name is also Ted, but I don't know. And they're like, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> what? God. Follow up on the lead. Every you have lead. one job. <laughs> <laughs> but Speck later, what is reported, attempts a suicide, although he disputes that and says that he actually... So he gets a cut on his forearm. 
Oh, okay. And he says it's from a bar fight, but it's called in as a suicide attempt. So it's up in the air whether or not that's actually what it was or if it was from a bar fight. The idea is that he did actually try and kill himself, but he's too prideful to admit that he w- he kind of has like this macho like masculine sure, like, I facade, do that. Right. and he's like, no, I'm too tough to actually try and kill myself. Yeah, well, so he um, the desk clerk at the hotel calls it in as an emergency for a suicide attempt, and he's taken to the hospital. And a surgical resident recognizes Specs born to raise hell tattoo that was ah. described in the newspaper. It's very specific. I mean, born, born to raise hell. Yeah. Which somebody mm. asked him, like, does that tattoo, like, is it symbolic of anything? He's like, no, just liked it. That's just what pick- I mean. He doesn't think anything through. Yeah, probably just some flash art. Just yeah. picked it on a drunk night. Probably a drunk tattoo. Probably. Yeah. So the police were called at the while well, he's at the hospital still. And they come to the hospital and he's arrested because he matches the description, mm. matches the tattoo. Everything's mm-hmm. all lining up. But at this time, the Miranda case is going on. In Arizona. Fun fact. I didn't realize that. Yep. And for those of you who don't know, this is where your Miranda rights come from. Yep. So what had happened during this time is many convictions were being vacated because mm-hmm. there had been this uproar of people who didn't understand their rights. Right. Or hadn't been given their rights. Right. And so everybody was kind of in a panic and Speck was arrested, but he wasn't questioned for at least three weeks after his arrest. Nobody wanted to do anything that was going to result in something being overturned. Yeah. Wow. So when he finally was questioned, Speck claimed that he'd been drinking and was on drugs at the time of the murder. Speck was deemed fit and sane for trial and at the time, they said that he was not insane at the time of mur- of the murders. But because of his suicide attempt, they had ordered that he began oh. receiving psychiatric treatment while he was awaiting trial. Yeah. The psychiatrist that began seeing him summarized him as depressed, anxious, um, with a deep sense of guilt and shame, but also had a deep love of his family. Which I'm like, who does that extend to? Which is, right. but it's interesting because you never hear of him mistreating his sisters, mistreating his mom, mom, like nothing like that. He hated his stepdad, but loved his real dad. And right. like all of that just, I mean, it doesn't quite add up to what we've seen in the past. Hmm. The same psychiatrist also said that he had obsessive compulsive personality and he suffered from something that was called Madonna prostitute attitude towards women. I will explain Thank because you. <laughs> I was like, what? I read this and I was in the car and I was like, I don't know what this is. And so Mikey and I had this whole conversation what about is this. It? Madonna. Madonna prostitute, prostitute syndrome or Madonna prostitute attitude, I guess. So okay. this is a Sigmund Freud theory. This is a Sigmund Freud theory specifically geared towards men who were unable to be sexually aroused in committed loving relationships. Oh. So they either perceive women to be saintly, which Madonna apparently was a saint, mm-hmm. unlike the Madonna we know today. Right. Not Madonna the artist. Right. Ma- Madonna, like the Madonna. Yes. And this is just as it's written as the theory, not my words. Right. Or whores, basically. Okay. And the two never intercross. Huh. So the whores, air quotes, are deemed suitable sexual partners. Okay. And sexual partners are deemed whores. So one is like the other. Oh. But 
The saintly are those that we would deem spouses. So those are the ones that we love. Those are the ones we cherish. The those are the ones, Right. Yeah. Those are the ones that we fall in love with. Yeah. But you don't have sex with them. Yep. Okay. Wow. Because once you have sex with them, then they become... Whores. Yes. That's odd. So they have these like separate identities in... Their mind. The men's head. Yeah. And the two don't really... Cross. So this is something Mikey and I talked about in depth because, like I said, we had three hours to kill. Yeah. So so you uphold, you know, uh, the, some women in your life to a right. certain standard, certain light. And right. then they're either that, and if they don't fit that mold, they're whores. Right. And that's all they're good for type right. of thing. And wow. likewise, like with his wife that he'd had sex with and gotten her pregnant three weeks into the relationship, mm. at that point he had lost that sense of respect for her and no longer really seed seed her. No really, no longer. <laughs> he seeded her all right. He seeded her. <laughs> he no longer really saw her as a spouse or someone to be honored Saintly. or cherished or loved right. or, you know, somebody that you had a committed relationship with. You were, she just became somebody that he had sex with. Yeah. She was tarnished. That's right. It. Right. Okay. And it's, and that's just how he saw all women either. Yeah. And it kind of like, mm. it overflowed into other things where it was like, women are cool and I'm okay with you and everything like that until you do something to piss me off. So like one of the women that he attacked at the bars um, had, he'd hit on her and she was like, no, no. And he was like, all right, well now you've offended me. So now I see you as this. I no longer see you as like this pure person that I want to have a relationship with. Now you're a whore that I can rape and do whatever I want to. Wow. So everything becomes very personal to him, which I'm kind of like, do we know of any other killers that have had this complex? I didn't look that far into it because I was That'd trying to wrap my head around know. what the syndrome what was. What it was, yeah. right. Because that's very interesting. That's like you're dissociating complete, like like one group of people into your own I know some have groups, because you know? I have heard this being like this same concept being thrown around. Sure. Um, in some of the cases that I've looked at or heard about where like he... Like, they would have sex with somebody and then they would see them as, like, being tarnished or dirty, yeah, yeah, or things like that. Or some love their mom, their sisters, their whatever. So it definitely exists out there. I just don't have, like, a clear-cut list. Yeah, and be interesting to know who has been, I guess, diagnosed with having this syndrome or or these these types of feelings because that's very interesting. It's also called the Madonna Whore Complex, which I'm like, oh. wow, these are really... <laughs> wow. Make that decision for me. Really well-named. Let me see. Apparently, Alfred Hitchcock used this as, like, a lot of examples, or a lot of inspiration behind his representation of Characters. women. Yeah. Mm. So, like, Vertigo, um, his, he has two female characters one of them is the virtuous blonde sophisticated sexually repressed madonna and then there's a dark-haired single sensual fallen woman is what they call her fallen woman yeah same because thing. they fall off this pedestal of holiness and cleanliness and same thing with martin scorsese um robert de niro when he played um both his characters in Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, Robert De Niro's character exhibited some of these same signs of that That complex. complex. And this is where Madonna brings her name, or pulls her name from. She says the singer Madonna played with both identities, especially in her earlier career. So she mirrors these same... This is basically the inspo for her identity. Right. Yeah, which I didn't realize. Like a virgin? 
Like a virgin. Well, that gives me pop That's culture. Very first time. <laughs> it gave me like a list for pop culture or whatever, sure. but it doesn't give me like yeah more to come. Um. So again, the two don't really mix. And then on top of this, he's also diagnosed with organic brain syndrome. This occurs from cerebral injuries from earlier in life. So the psychiatrist argued that he actually was insane at the time of the murders because with his traumatic brain injuries, plus the drugs and alcohol that he was on, the effects of his already damaged brain oh. resulted in insanity. So not temporary insanity to where like, oh, just this one period of time in his life, but like temporary in like this night type of thing. Yes, like it was so drug-induced. Right, yeah. so the night of he was temporarily insane. Right. Interesting. But the psychiatrist did not testify to this because it was discovered that he was writing a book about spec for financial gain. Oh, dude, you wait till afterwards. Yeah, he was fired from the jail and he had received consent from spec to, quote, tell his story. So the book was published in the summer of 1967, but that was after the trial had already taken place. But okay. basically the psychiatrist was kind of like, like enough with you. We're not, yeah. if you're just in this for the money, then we can't really trust. You He's can't. not a trusted source. You can't, yeah. right. Speck claimed that he had no memory of the crime, but he'd also confessed to a doctor at the hospital during his suicide attempt, but his confession couldn't be used because he was under sedation. Mm. And the prosecution didn't push for it because they said they had an eyewitness. So they didn't really need his, his confession. They didn't need his confession. Right. Yeah. So his trial began on April 3rd of 1967. It took place in Peoria, Illinois, which is about three hours away from Chicago. A gag order was put on the press so they couldn't report hmm. on it during this time. And during the trial, the surviving nursing student was asked to ID the man that had killed Ooh. all of her co-workers, co-workers, co-students, friends, roommates, roommates. all yeah. of the above. So Corazon got up from her seat at the witness stand, walked directly in front of Richard oh, Speck. Shit. He, she pointed a finger at him, almost touching him and said, this is the man. Ooh. I was like, get Corazon. it girl. Okay. I see. Girl. <laughs> And so the police then testified that they had matching fingerprints from him being at the scene, also that matched him. And then on April 15th, the jury deliberated for 49 minutes, and they found him guilty and recommended the death penalty. That is quick for the Which, death penalty. And for those of you who haven't been on a jury, I know we've outlined this before, but yeah. like, there's like 30 minutes that go into them just telling you, like, these are the charges, mm -hmm. this is what the charges mean. Like these this is what are, the sentence would be. Here's yeah, what you need these to are look your over. resources, and yeah. you need to go over this, this, and this, and these are yeah. Like there's a whole like debrief that takes freaking forever. So basically, they talked about where they were going to lunch for the other fifteen minutes. Yes, pretty much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. I've actually heard of a jury that did that, where they delayed <laughs> things so they would get lunch. <laughs> I can't remember what case that was. If I were on a jury. You bet your ass I'd wait for pizza to they come were like, before I made a Well, decision. they were like, if we pulled this out until this time, then we get lunch paid for, so... Yep. Might as well. Absolutely. Let's talk. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be mad at a full sequester either. Like a little hotel night by myself, jumping between two beds. 
watch great. all of the oxygen I want without Kara, I'm all for it. <laughs> Not because she hates her wife, but because Kara doesn't like oxygen. Right. <laughs> the show. To clarify. The show. <laughs> yeah. She... Not regular oxygen. We need that. <laughs> so he was sentenced to the electric chair on June 5th. And with that became, um, with that came an immediate grant for a stay of appeal. Because mm. that's just, yeah. that is what it is. And the Supreme Court upheld the conviction and the death sentence. He later did try another appeal. Um, and at that appeal, he actually, what the argument was is that Speck suffered from a genetic mutation and possessed an extra Y chromosome that made him more aggressive. So there was a couple different... Oh. Um, endocrinologists and genetic specialists and doctors or whatever that were working on this theory that certain men had an XYY chromosome pattern instead of XY. Wow. And that extra Y would make them more aggressive. It, like, showed itself with your height being, like, what was considered above average at that time. Sure. He was just over six feet tall. So he oh, wasn't tall. really... I mean, I mean, it isn't to me five, because... It's not your 5'7 average, 5'8, you know what I mean? Is that what's average for a man? Uh, no, I'm probably very, not. Probably I'm, for that time, though? I think 5'10, 5'11 is average for a guy. Oh, maybe. I but I'm maybe. used to, I have very tall men in my family, yeah. so... For me, I'm like, 6'2 is average. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, like, 5'7 is average. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, there was, like, this whole thing about how, like, he, he had all the markers. Another one is, like, having really um, severe acne, which is something that he had suffered from as a kid. Weird. And they were like, he has to have it, he has to have it, he has to have it. And so they did this whole genetic panel for him, and it came back that he had a regular chromosome pattern and no additional Ys. Oh. So not only, but so it was. So these are just all scientists that had this theory, like, theory. He, matches the, he matches the profile of someone exactly. that would have it. Until they did it. Got it. So there was a double blow here because not only did he not have the chromosome pattern, but the theory about having an extra Y chromosome making you more aggressive was also disproven during this time. Mm. That this was not actually something that right. resulted from this specific genetic mutation. Got it. So the appeal was denied based on all of this information. On June 28th, 1971, his death sentence was reversed based on a biased jury selection. What they'd found is that the jurors in his case were excluded if they held beliefs against the death penalty. So whether they be religious or whatever it may be, if they weren't in favor of the death penalty, they were not selected for jury selection. So everybody that was on the jury panel was, okay was not it. against the death penalty. Right. Not necessarily that they were for it, but they weren't against it. Mm -hmm. So his death penalty was thrown out. His conviction remained intact. So at that point, when your sentencing is overturned, you have to go in for resentencing. Now, at this time, the U.S. Supreme Court had just ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional. So he was resentenced to eight consecutive terms of 50 to 150 years. <laughs> which totaled 400 to 1,200 years in prison. Wow. He was denied parole seven minutes into his first parole hearing <laughs> after that. And then was subsequently denied parole on six other hearings that occurred after the fact. And then in 1978, he was on record for the first time confessing to the crimes to a Chicago Tribune columnist. Oh. Um, he claimed that he would have done the same thing sober when it came into question, like, 
was this something that you were actually insane because of the drugs, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, no, 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 I would have been, I would have done the same thing if I had been completely sober. That really didn't play a part. So. Probably just gave him courage. Which is interesting because he'd said, I don't remember it. And then he's like, I do remember it, but I didn't necessarily have control over it. And now he's like, I do remember it and I did have control over it. So And I would do it again. Yeah. He did say that he had intended for it to be a robbery and Mm. that it should have been a robbery, but it wasn't. So. Mm. Can't really go back on that one. Um, He earned the nickname Birdman in prison, and this was based on the character (laughs) from Birdman of Alcatraz, which is the film. And this was because he, kind of like the character in Birdman of Alcatraz, he kept sparrows in his cell that had flown in. And when he was interviewed for John Douglas's book Mindhunter, he told him about this injured sparrow that he had nursed back to health, and he'd keep it on his shoulder as a pet. And it, like, hung out in his cell and everything like that. And he went back and forth with the guards about it. Like, you can't have a pet. You can't have a Mm. pet. Like, that's not something you can have. And so, one day, one of the guards came in. He was like, yo, you got to get rid of the sparrow or whatever. And Speck said to him, like, oh, I can't have it? Like, what? I... Like what he, do you mean I can't? He was, was like, first you can't have a pet or whatever. Yeah. And so Speck took the bird that he had, again, nursed back no. to home. I know some of you feel very strongly about the animal thing. Ah. So he takes the bird, walks over to a spinning fan, and throws <gasps> the bird into the fan. Stop. And the guard's, like, completely horrified. He was like, what did you just, like, why would you do that? And he's like, I thought that you really liked that bird. And he's like, I did. But if I can't have it, then no one can. Oh, yeah, you're fucked in the head. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, aside from that, he was a loner. He collected (laughs) stamps. And he enjoyed listening to music. Hmm. Um, he also was often caught with drugs or moonshine, but he didn't really care about getting trouble because to his point, he was like, how am I getting in trouble? I'm here for 1200 years. You can't do anything worse. I'm gonna haunt this place forever. Um, he also described himself as freakish, which I was like, (laughs) we're all a little freakish, (laughs) right? But especially him. (laughs) And then when Robert Ressler did his book called Whoever Fights Monsters, like I said, he described him, again, as unintelligent with little insight into what he did and why he did it. Um, When the two had interviewed him together, because, like I said, they were kind of like a team or whatever. Yeah. Speck, at that point, was adamant. Like, he did not want to be part of the Mindhunter Project. He was like, when he saw the list of the guys they were interviewing, he was like, these are all serial killers. I'm not like them. Mm. Which, to his point, he's not, he's not really he's a mass murderer. But he did kill other people, but not. I don't know. I'm kind of back and forth on it. I'm kind of like you're like a hybrid. He is. He's like this weird hybrid. Yeah. Because he's killed before. Yeah. He. That we know of or think of. Yeah. Right. So he was only convicted of the eight, but. But he was like, I do not want to be part of this. Don't let me in this with them. Like this is stupid. And he was like, they're all crazy. I'm not crazy. They're crazy. Okay. <laughs> all right. Richard. But then he did eventually agree to sit down with them. And which this part to me is so interesting when we talk about mass murderers, right? Because yeah. everybody knows kind of my theories about Charles Manson. Charles Manson uh-huh. is none of them because Charles Manson did not kill anybody. Right. Despite the labels that he has been not given. Not with his own hand. Right. 
But when they sat him down for his interview, he mirrored the same actions that Charles Manson did, which included taking a seat at the head of the table Hmm. and sitting on top of, at the time, the table, the bench, whatever it was he was sitting, sitting on top of it so he sat higher than John Douglas and Robert Ressler. Okay. So it's kind of like this weird power move or whatever. Yeah, it's totally a power move. Almost like a God complex type of thing. Like, I'm higher than you. Yeah. And that was that they drew that parallel that the other person that had done that, that was part of the study was Charles Manson. Mm -hmm. And it's very similarly in the fact that Charles Manson obviously didn't commit his own crimes, but he is kind of more of the mass murderer. Right. Again, weird hybrid. That is a hybrid. That is a good way to explain it. During this interview, he admitted that he had killed them because he didn't want them to ID him. It wasn't a sexual thing. Mm. It was like, I don't want them to be able to identify me or whatever. And this is the one where... But he did rape one of them. Right. So that's what I'm getting to. Okay. So this is where John Douglas, who his character is mirrored in Holden in the show, where Holden takes on this kind of like talking like a guy in a locker room in a really inappropriate setting mm-hmm. to an extreme type thing where yeah. he was like, you know, using really vulgar language and talking about how, oh, you did this to this girl and you did this to this girl and blah, blah, blah. But like, like yeah, I would have fucked that girl too exactly. or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And um, he's kind of like, how did you, you know, how did you do that with eight girls in one night? Blah, blah, blah. And that's oh, where God. he finally admits he's like, Oh, yeah, no, the media blew that out of proportion. I didn't do that with all eight of them. It was just the last one. Oh. And that's where he's like, it wasn't a sexual thing. It was, like, the very last one because, just because. But, like, the whole night itself was not based on a whole sexual fantasy. Huh. So it wasn't until his interview with uh, Douglas that it was cleared up that he didn't rape all eight? Right. Oh, Wow. He, like I said, his dad also died, what did I say, 47 or mm-hmm. something like that a from a heart attack. attack? Richard Speck died of a heart attack on December 5th of 1991, and he was 50 years old. That's young, Isn't too. that interesting? That is really interesting. That both of them would die at such a young age mm-hmm. from heart problems, which I'm like, there has to be something genetic there. Yeah, absolutely. But um, that is not the end of our story with Richard Speck. Really? So he's gone... He gone and dead now. Yeah, he's he's and, haunting that jail now. <laughs> funny you should say that. Oh wow! Because really? uh, in May of 1996, a newsroom anchor received tapes that were made at the Stateville Correctional Facility where he was held. The year was 1988. No. An anonymous lawyer sent them over to the news anchor. Wow. And in it featured all of the horrible things that were going on in the prison. Oh. All the scandals. Really? And Speck was front and center as like a starring character in the films, which included him performing oral sex on another inmate. Oh. Which was really surprising to me because of his whole like macho character, but also that he never showed any inclination towards men. This is all about to get very confusing. Okay. So he's shown perform, performing oral sex on this other inmate. Um, it also shows him snorting large amounts of cocaine. In jail? In prison. Prison, yeah. He at one point is featured wearing silk underwears that belong to women. 
And he's kind of like prancing How around in them. Getting oh wait, these are videotapes. These are videotapes. Videotapes. Video of him oh, doing this. Oh shit! I was okay. Wait, I thought you'd said like just when you said tapes, I was thinking like recordings, like oh, audio no. recordings. He's on video. <gasps> these are on video. Yeah, and he has developed what looked to be female-like breast tissue. No, from smuggled-in hormones, which I'm like, wow, <laughs> that goes way outside of Whoa. any profile that I would have ever built for him. Like, just, I don't, I don't know. I feel like not by, by not because of your research, but just, like, there's a lot not known, maybe, about yeah. his. But then it's like, when you're stuck, if you do have, yeah, yeah. if you already are kind of warped in your ideas towards Women and sex. And... Women and sex. And then you find yourself in an all-male prison for the rest of your life. Maybe things change. That's a leap. I mean, I, I still think so, too. But, like, I mean, you hear about this. Do you think this... he wanted to be the Madonna or the whore? Definitely the whore. Yeah. If you're Just being a whore. Um, definitely, I think... More on the whore side because the Madonnas, the saintly Madonnas are right. not snor- snorting cocaine and doing. Giving blowies. That's yeah. That's what we'll go with. Got it. Yeah. But I mean, it would be interesting to understand how his complex about women might have translated to him, I mean, essentially becoming more of a female and the fact that he's taking female hormones. It makes me think. And playing the female submissive role. Like, did he think, I know everything that there is to, you know, like, how, what a whore is, or what a woman should be like, or what a woman should do, or whatever? That he's like, I know it so well that I'm gonna be that? I don't think so. I mean, Hmm. I don't know. But, like, there's part of me that goes, like... (sighs) Did he envy the whores? Oh, now that's a theory. Maybe. There's something more to it there, obviously. A lot, Yeah. And then on film, he also was caught saying to the person that was filming it, who was another inmate, I don't know how they got these camcorders. Yeah. Yeah. But he was like, if they only knew how much fun I was having, they'd turn me loose. Like, he was just having a grand old time in prison. Oh, my God. The Illinois legislator apparently hadn't, like, briefed the film before they decided to jam-pack an auditorium of people in to view the film. And so it's a two-hour video, and then they cut it when it gets to the scene. All of a sudden, Richard Speck's on camera, on his knees. Like, they're like, okay, hold. All right. <laughs> Not suitable for all audiences. <laughs> so they cut that. But on film, the inmate filming had asked Speck why he killed the nurses, and he shrugged at what? the camera and said it just wasn't their night. Oh, Which I'm pretty sure that line is featured in the Mindhunter series that he says that. It, like, just, it just wasn't, wasn't their night. night. Yeah. yeah. He said that he had no feelings towards it. The guy that was filming, he was like, what do you feel about it? He's like, I don't feel anything about it. And he's like, if you're asking if I'm sorry, I'm not. Like, he feels nothing towards it. Ew. That was the last glimpse that we got into Richard Speck's life. Like I said, this that tape went, came out yeah. after he was already gone. So there's not really anything anyone can do about it. So he was cremated. His sister was really afraid that his grave would be 
defaced or whatever. Yeah. So she actually had his ashes spread instead. So that way nothing would happen to his burial site. And that is the story of Richard Speck. That went a lot further after his death than I thought it was going to. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting little spin there. Are these videos, were these videos ever? I don't know if they were ever made available to the public. I didn't look. It'd be interesting to know. I wonder, and it's just a, it's just a wonder type thing. I'm sure we'll never know the answer to this. That obviously there's a lot more that happened, maybe in this childhood, earlier adulthood that changed his views. Shaped them, yeah. Well, and that's where I'm kind of like that psychiatrist that said that he had like this great view of his family or whatever. I'm like, you missed something there, right? There's something going on there. Not only that, but then also, I, I'd be interested to know. Had he killed before the one that he got caught before that, right? Well, or raped, or he that one woman that he um ruptured her liver or whatever. Yeah. I think that's the first one that they identify as being, and that one was allegedly right because they didn't, he was never convicted right. of that, right? So, yeah, that's just one, yeah. Hmm, that's really interesting, yeah. So, um, we won't do a What the Florida today. We'll save that for another episode. But this is my last one that I went over with Mikey. So, I wanted to do it because I promised to all of you guys that I would do it. Um, but also because it seemed fitting to me that my first episode back would be my last one with him. So, that is it for me, I think. Okay. So, as always, you can follow us on Facebook under stranger danger colon a true crime podcast you can join the group stranger danger colon murder lovers you can find us on twitter using at sd true crime pod you can always send us an email with either your spooky story or your run-in with true crime and the email is a stranger danger at gmail.com and you can find us on instagram which is a stranger danger podcast Nailed it. Done. Thank you. Um, Glad to have you back. (laughs) Thank you. And I'm glad to be back. And thank you to all of you. And I hope that this can continue to be a safe escape for all of you like it is for me. And so this one is for Mikey, my love.